Well, not many of us were around, but back on May 22nd, this day, 1843, was sort of the second, yeah, you got that one, right? Where not many of us were around, that's good. Um, back in that particular time was the first major wagon trail venture uh, to the Northwest uh, called the Oregon Trail. Uh, U.S. sovereignty over the Oregon Territory was not, would not get figured out for another couple of years, and it wasn't like there wasn't people already there. The previous year, there were 70 different individuals who ventured out on what we call the Oregon Trail, where they would travel uh, through the Platte River, through the Rocky Mountains, the Southwest Pass of Wyoming, to end up on the Columbia River, back to where Barb and I lived in Oregon for almost 20 years. So it's kind of a novel story for us. Uh, it's not like there wasn't people already there. There were certainly indigenous Americans who had already lived there for decades and decades. There was missionaries and fur traders that had already settled in Oregon. In fact, there was already books that were written that sort of gave a taste of what was there. And it was attractive because it was almost kind of painted as the new promised land, the paradise where farmland was rich and the soil would produce any kinds of crops. And, uh, and so in the next year, around uh, this particular day, 1842, there was almost 1,000 individuals who set out. Um, and from that particular uh, process, uh, in a sense, emigrated out to the Oregon coast to settle the land. Uh, part of the reason there was such a huge influx of, of additional people going was because at that particular time, the Midwest was in a severe depression. Uh, there was uh, a lot of scarcity of things, and it was a difficult environment. And so this was painted as a little bit as, as the new horizons, the new opportunities for people to settle, to flourish, and to thrive with their families. What I find interesting about that is that in, if you go back several thousand years, you'll find a similar situation with John, the one who came baptizing, and Jesus coming on the scene with Israel. You might say they had much of a, a spiritual depression because they had settled into a religion really that excluded God. It was all about legality and rules and regulations, and it had basically dominated the landscape, and it really sort of what became the culture of the people. And yet it didn't have life to it. It didn't have that sense of, of relationship with the living God and experiencing the power of his presence. It didn't set Israel up with all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament that they would be the crown jewel of his eye and a kingdom of priests from which God would communicate his love and grace to a lost world. They had struggled into the routine of life and been buried under the circumstances of the Roman dictatorships that were now ruling and so they were a people that had the freedom to live within the prison that they had experienced. And so the good news was that as John came on the scene, he's saying, listen, I'm coming to you and I'm preparing you for the one that the Old Testament spoke about, and that's the Messiah. And so it, John was an individual, as we'll see in a moment, who attracted some, a lot of individuals in this announcement as he prepared Israel for the coming Messiah. As we begin to look at it, we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. I know we're not taking these in the big kind of chunks of text that you'd like to or maybe accustomed to, but there are some profound things that are on the horizon of this very simple statement about Jesus inaugurating his mission in the world. 
We've just come through this whole process of his baptism where John baptized him and he sought him out and it became sort of his inauguration and God putting his son on display. But now Jesus is going to take a step to start indicating and engaging the mission that he's on in the world. We will notice some things that are pretty particular to it, but Mark says this very simply. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's unique is these are kind of the first words that Mark gives us that Jesus actually said. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of like the old ad about when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. Well, when Jesus speaks, this is a time to really listen. The message is simple, but it's very profound. But what we're going to discover is that as Jesus engages the mission, it's going to be costly. There's no way to engage the mission without it costing something, or at least having the threat of risk in terms of what they're about to do. Not, not unlike when people ventured out a thousand at a time to go from Missouri to Oregon. There's all kinds of unforeseen risks and unpredictabilities and disease and circumstances and conflict that they had to face or at least anticipate might be the reality of their journey and some of them may not even get there. And so on the horizon of the Messiah now stepping into the life of Israel, this is a profound statement and a profound reality that Israel will either get or they're going to miss it. As you begin to look at this, you will discover certain things that happen, and it starts with John. You'll notice that he makes a statement that almost sounds like a trivial pursuit question. He simply says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. That's all that Mark mentions about this, but I want you to notice that there are a whole lot of things that come behind that that I think are relevant to the situation. He writes it for a reason, and he wants them to know some things, and I think there's some profound things that we need to pay attention to with this little statement that after John was arrested, Jesus then gets on the move. John's ministry is pretty simple. It was very strategic. We know that because of a number of different things. Mark mentions that, it was, that he was really indispensable. He was, had a one-of-a-kind type of ministry in that we, while there's lots of things behind the scenes that God had already been doing, there is a certain uniqueness to John's ministry. He is described by Jesus as the greatest ever born because he was the forerunner of the Messiah. And so he has gone on this, this new ministry, which you and I might call a revival ministry, where he is calling the people to repentance, calling them out of the fifth system of the scribes and the Pharisees, out of the religion of the times, out of the legalism of that's based on the Old Testament but has not brought any life and vitality to the reality of who God's people are. And so he, this is a new voice on the horizon and it is absolutely strategic. And so in one sense, it is so unique that he's indispensable to the process. He is absolutely key. But before I jump into the details, let me remind you that in spite of the fact that there's a certain uniqueness to what he's doing because no one else is doing it, we have lost sight of the fact that every ministry has a certain indispensability and uniqueness to it. You know, we've, we've sort of bought into the clutter in our life that some people are more important than others. 
that if they have public ministries, that's more important than the ones that are done behind the scenes. That those who volunteer aren't as important as those who get paid. Those who work with infants may not be as important as those who work with adults or the other way around. In a world that's crashing around us, we might see that the most vital ministry has to be with our children and our young people, which wouldn't doubt it. And yet, sometimes those are the hardest kinds of ministries because in our world, people don't want to get tied into things. They don't want commitments. They don't want obligations that they have to meet because we love our freedom. What we need to understand, even from John's example, is that God called him to a ministry that was unlike anything else that anyone else was doing, and it's going to cost him something, as we see here, but he's committed to doing it. Not because it's going to make him rich or successful or popular, it's going to do those things, but he does it because that's what God's called him to be and do. In our world, it's important for all of us as individuals who claim to know Jesus Christ is to know that whatever ministry God calls us to, it's as vital and as significant and indispensable in some respects even as John's. You may not think about it that way. We just might say, well, I'm just volunteer for a program. No big deal. I don't really do anything significant. I fill a gap. I think those are always the wrong reasons to do ministry. It's just help the program succeed. And as John steps into this thing, it is absolutely strategic because it's indispensable. As I talk about John's ministry, one of the things that I've often said is that everybody is indispensably dispensable. And we see that in John's ministry. He's not really the focal point of what is important here. It's going to be Jesus. But he's indispensable because God's called him to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so whatever the ministry is, we are indispensably dispensable. Because God has called us to it. Not because it's important in the eyes of other people around us or even in our own eyes. But this is what God calls us to be and do. But John's ministry was not only strategic, but it was special. It was special in the sense that it fulfilled prophecy, that God had already predicted that that the Messiah was going to come and that he was going to take his place amongst his people. If you, uh, it isn't included here, but it's worth mentioning in Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Zechariah, he tells us the significance uh, and the specialness of what John will do. And John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I've already suggested to you that in the world we live in, we all sort of have a John the baptizing ministry. That God has called us to live among people that don't know him, that have bought into legalistic religion and their own philosophical ideas about what's going to happen to them in life, whose hearts are often hard to the reality of relationship with Christ, and God's placed you in the workplace or at school or in the company or in the neighborhood that you're in because he wants us to live in such a way that people's hearts at some point down the road will be prepared for the Messiah. And yet the danger is is that we're often so preoccupied with doing our own thing that we never have meaningful interactions with the people that God has placed right in our sphere of influence. He is fulfilling God's role. 
And it's unique in relationship to Israel because it's, it's kind of, as I said, a revival ministry. He's calling them to, out of the staleness of where they're living to consider the vital relationship with Christ, who is Messiah. And, and he's there to prepare them. But unfortunately, to prepare them for that, he is not saying, listen, I want you to add this concept to the way you live and see if it helps improve your lifestyle or the way you treat people. His ministry is far more profound. Is that he's saying, listen, you need to repent. You need, you need to have a whole different mindset than what you've got right now. Because you'll never be prepared for the Messiah if you think you can just add him to your life rather than surrendering your life. And so the ministry of John was strategic. It was special, but it was also significant. It was significant is that John had already developed a following. I mean, we're told in Matthew chapter three, verse five, that, that all of Judea and Jerusalem and all the people in the region have been flocking out to see him. I mean, he's, he's been attracting a crowd. He's, he's been making an impression. And so all these individuals, even the Pharisees and the scribes, it, it literally says many of the Pharisees and scribes came out to, to see John doing what he's doing because even though they were controlling the religious environment, they, were, they needed to figure out what this guy was doing. And they wanted to sort of get in on it so that they would be where the crowds are. Because the Pharisees and scribes love controlling the, the crowds. They love to have the attention. They love to think that they were the teachers that were going to instruct people on how they were supposed to live. John, we are even told that John had his own disciples, his own followers. I mean, if he was here today, he'd have his own podcast. If he was on Instagram, he'd have X number of followers following him. On Facebook, he'd have a couple of thousand likes because he was he was a new voice on the horizon he was saying things that didn't fit the culture that sort of got away from the institutionalized religion that the pharisees and scribes had manipulated and controlled and it was a fresh voice and people were resonating with it but then there was this problem that some of them in in john chapter 3 for instance were coming to him and saying hey John, hang on, wait a minute. You know this guy, the Messiah that you had baptized? Just so you know, like he's starting to attract more people than you are. And John says, well, hang on, just a minute. Nobody has any privileges like this other than what God has granted to them, what's been granted and permitted by them by heaven. He saw himself as under authority and he had a very specific mission. And that's when he made this great statement that he must increase and I must decrease. Actually, he puts it in reverse order. I must decrease and Christ must increase. And what's intriguing about this is that John is, has this significant ministry, but then all of a sudden when you come to this verse, he simply says that after John was arrested and we're suddenly faced with the reality that one of the most significant spiritual leaders, if you want to use that language, who's a fresh voice, who's calling for revival, who's making a difference and impacting people, is suddenly taken right off the board and his ministry is immediately halted. Now the question is, what's the point of this? Well, one of the things that I think is pretty clear about John in terms of what isn't said here, and yet I think is important to notice because 
Mark goes to the trouble to tell us that after he was arrested, then uh, Jesus steps on the scene, is that while John was indispensably dispensable, he wasn't believing the press that he was hearing about himself. If you remember, there was people that came to him and they were saying, listen, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Now, you'd hate for that to happen today because what happens with Christian leaders when people start telling them they're so fantastic and I so love your messages and I love all that you're doing and and, and you're magnificent and your glory, are are you the one that we need to follow? John says, no, you're, I'm not the one. And, and fortunately, he doesn't buy into all the press that he's hearing from people. Because one of the greatest catastrophes of our modern day culture is leaders who are buying into their own press and buying into all the popularity and buying into all the, 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 the fanfare that goes on with them. And then they start thinking that they're pretty special and building their own kingdom and their own followers, and they brag about how many people that they are following them. And they've never transferred the reality of their ministry that it's about Christ. And yet it doesn't just happen to popular leaders, it happens, can happen to every one of us. Where we start thinking that we're super special because we're simply doing what God's called us to and, and, and that we deserve the fanfare and that we are more special than we think we are. And Christianity doesn't need any more individuals who are building their own kingdom. They need people like John who understands it's Christ who has to increase and he must decrease. It's great that Jesus is attracting more people than I am. And yet we've got all kinds of struggle. And and there are ministries that have grown and done fabulous things, so don't overboard this too much. But there are all kinds of ministries that you and I know about that it's all about the personality. It's all about one person, and they have thousands of followers because they're the fresh voice calling for revival. John doesn't make it about the priority of his success. About, he makes it about pointing people to Jesus. And if you and I in Oak Grove are going to thrive, it's not about how impressive we can be to the world about our programming or our building size or the number of people. It's about how many people we're pointing to Jesus. And that's not going to happen on Sunday mornings as much as it would be that every single one of us sees the, us in the same shoes as John, is that wherever you're living, Monday through Saturday, that you're living in such a way that you're helping prepare people to be open to the reality of the Messiah. But it would be Israel for, hard on Israel, too. I mean, all these people have flocked to John. They've flocked out and been baptized by him. There's people from all parts of the country that are coming to him. Some of them would even label themselves, I'm a follower of John. This guy's amazing. I love listening to him. And then all of a sudden, because he's sort of got this revivalist preparation thing, he's got into Herod Antipas's face and kept telling Herod, dude, you shouldn't be having your, your, your brother's wife. He's reading through Josephus. This guy was pretty messed up. He was self-surfing, he was all about himself. It was, he, 
fact, at one point, it was after Jesus stood before Herod, six years later, he gets deposed by Caesar because he found out that he was rallying and storing up, I think, about 70,000 troops that he was going to start establishing his own kingship. And so Caesar deposed them and kicks them off into France, I think. Tells them, don't come back because he's so full of himself. Now, I know we've probably never heard of a leader who's so full of himself loses their ministry because it's all about them. But we, we don't need more about that. What we need is more about Jesus. But it would be hard on Israel because they've put all their eggs into John and they've heard the message, but man, John, you're so popular. And all of a sudden he's arrested and he's one of the most important chess pieces taken off the board. You know, it's, it's hard on God's people when they hear a fresh voice and then they're taken out of the ministry. And this wasn't because of anything John did. He just kept getting in Herod's face saying, listen, all these evil, immoral things you're doing, you're out of line, dude. You need to repent. And so Herod had enough of this and he says, all right, well, fine. I'll just stick you in jail. And yet Herod was kind of intrigued by John. He protected him when he was in jail to make sure he didn't get injured or killed. And he loved to have him come out and listen to him, but he was afraid of John because he knew he was a holy man who was committed to righteousness. That wasn't him. That wasn't Herod. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to find out that his daughter had King chop his head, John's head off because she had a bone to peck with him. And so it doesn't end well for him. But one of the things we have to be careful in our culture is that it's very easy to be attracted by personalities who are a fresh voice telling us things that we think make sense. Our commitment sometimes can never be so loyal to a, a personality that it's even actually more devoted than our, our commitment to Christ. There are, I was talking to a pastor a couple weeks ago who uh, was telling me that they had been running Awana, but they changed it. And, uh, and don't get any ideas. I'm not saying we're changing anything. I'm just giving you a story that I heard. Okay, hang on. But the reason why I've heard from a lot of pastors that they want to change Awana is because what happens is it's really hard to run because it needs a lot of volunteers. And then what happens is, is other churches can't sustain it, so they don't have Awana, and then they send all their kids to this church's Awana. Sometimes they help, sometimes they don't. But it becomes, instead of a missional outreach, it becomes just holding tank just to look after our own kids. Now, that in itself isn't bad, but when it stops being missional, that's why churches have stopped it. But they sort of took on another program that was like 90% the same kinds of things that Awana was, but because they stopped calling it Awana, they had all kinds of families leave the church and go to another church because it wasn't Awana. And, and people can be devoted to personalities, they can be absolutely devoted to programs, they can even be devoted to places where they do their worship. And sometimes that trumps their, even their commitment to Jesus. Now, they won't argue that. But it's amazing how distracted they could have been. Israel could have said, look it, we're committed to John. We're going to go storm the gates of Herod, and we're going to demand that he let go, John go. I mean, to some degree, you have to ask the same question. 
Jesus and John were related. Why isn't Jesus going to defend his friend in prison? To try to appeal to get him out? Well, that's a whole other discussion. But, in, but what I believe happens here in the throes of this is that I think in the sovereignty of God, John fulfills his ministry, he presents Jesus as Messiah, and that's what he was called to do. And then out of no fault of his own, because he was still calling the leaders to repentance, he got thrown in prison. And what does that do? That forces the people and his disciples to actually believe the message he was preaching. It's not about loyalty to John, it's about loyalty to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you that that the issue for us as ordinary individuals and believers in Christ is that, hey, it's fine to be loyal to a community of faith. It's great to have people that we love to listen to and preach and teach because they stir our hearts and the Spirit of God speaks through them. It's great to enjoy worship experiences that stir our heart. But personalities can never replace Jesus. The experience of worship can't replace the worship of Jesus. And so when John's taken out of the way, it now sets the stage front and center that it's Jesus alone. There's no competition because that was what some of the problems seemed to be. At least with John's disciples. Well, wait a minute. I'm a disciple of John. Now you want me to switch allegiances to Jesus? And if John was answering the question, he'd say, absolutely, that's what my purpose is. It's not how many people follow me, it's how many people are surrendering to Jesus. And that has to be our posture here at Oak Grove Church. It's not about how many people like us, it's how many people turn their life over to Jesus. And so John comes off the table, as it were, because he's fulfilled his ministry, and Jesus becomes front and center. And listen, at Oak Grove Church, it always has to be Jesus front and center. And if it doesn't feel like that, you need to come and tell us, hey, we th- this doesn't feel like it's about Jesus anymore. Because that's what our mission is about. And so after John is arrested, he's taken off the table so that at least his disciples know that their allegiance needs to go from John to Jesus. Then Jesus steps on the scene and he now creates movement. Now, it's really interesting to sort of think about the reality here because Jesus now steps on the scene and he engages it very intentionally. And it tells us in very simple terms that as Jesus is walking away, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, not all the details are given here, but I want you to notice that where Galilee is in relationship to uh, Nazareth. Remember, he grew up in Nazareth. He is in Galilee, and Matthew chapter four gives us more details about this. It says, now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, 
The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those who are dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So instead of running away from Herod into areas where he doesn't have jurisdiction, he steps deeper into his jurisdiction and goes from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is where he's going to live. And this is the territory that, that Herod rules. He rules in Zebulun and Naphtali. You probably go, it sounds like some Old Testament dude that I don't know about. Well, you're right. It was part of the, when they divided the land, they divided it up between all the patriarchs, as it were, and Zebulun and Naphtali are areas of territory that are up around the Sea of Galilee. And so what, what the point here is simply is that Jesus, when he inaugurates his ministry, is shaped by the purposes of the Father. It's shaped by the scriptures, not by his desire to preserve or protect himself. Because frankly, if John was put in prison, I would go, well, man, if he took John and he's been preaching about me, maybe it might be a good idea to start down in Jerusalem where he doesn't have jurisdiction. Because there's the threat of Herod going after Jesus the way he went after John. Do you think Jesus' message is going to be any different than John's? Nope. But Jesus isn't about the politics, he's about the mission. And so he steps deeper into his jurisdiction and he starts preaching this sense of gospel. And the essential point is that his life was shaped by the will of the Father and by the scriptures, not by the circumstances around him. Now that may sound really simple, but I want you to notice that the, 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 the whole picture here that I want you to see is that Jesus takes the initiative to go to the people. He doesn't set up camp and expect them to go, come to him. Now I know that we would love to build a building, open the doors and say, if you build it, they will come. I got news for you. It doesn't happen that way. And the key word that I want you to remember, if you want to know anything about Jesus initiating this ministry, is that he's intentional about stepping into the lives of people that need to hear him. He doesn't set up a tent beside the synagogue, although he will teach in the synagogues, where he says, come and visit me, we're going to have a revival meeting. He goes out into the world and he lives with people in their space, in their journey, and he's going to call them to repent and believe in the gospel, but it's about him going to them, not them coming to him. John was great because he attracted a lot of people. Jesus is going to step back into their world rather than having them come to his. It fulfills the purpose of the scripture. And so his methodology is that he was willing to initiate contact with unbelievers. Some of them were very religious. Some of them knew the law. Some of them were pagans. A lot of them have immoral problems, but he was willing to step into their world, not assume that he can force them out of that to conform to his. And if we want to make a difference, here's the challenge. If we're going to initiate mission, it's not just that the doors are open and we come and meet. I think that's a vital part of energizing us to the mission of Christ so that we keep hearing the Spirit of God in community call us to what God wants us to do. 
But if we're really going to engage the mission, when you go to work on Monday or you go to school on Monday or whatever you're doing on Monday, that's your mission field. And if you don't take the initiative to have conversations and sit down for lunch with people and ask how individuals are doing and pray for those who are struggling with their families and buy someone lunch that doesn't have lunch for the day, we're never going to fulfill the mission of Jesus. Because Jesus takes the initiative, and that's his methodology. And then he gets around simply to the message. And the message is pretty simple, although he adds some things that we wouldn't think about. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he calls people to repent and believe in the gospel. It does the first thing when he says the time is fulfilled is that God has his fingerprints on all these events that are unfolding. The time is fulfilled. The, the, a lot of the quotes that tie to this, for instance, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, when you start looking at all the, the Gospels and seeing how they tie into the presentation of Jesus after John is put in prison, reflect that God had predicted that this Messiah was going to come along and step into the lives of Israel and he's going to communicate this gospel. And that timing may be inconvenient for John because as he was preparing, he ended up being slammed in the face and thrown in prison. But, but God's timing is perfect. And Jesus steps on the scene and he steps and moves from Nazareth deeper into Herod's jurisdiction, and he starts proclaiming, in a sense, the same message as repent and believe in the gospel. And that message hasn't changed. Now, we might not do it like the itinerant evangelist who goes around simply on the street corners and proclaiming people need to repent, but in our own way, that's what people need to do. Because if people don't repent, they just add Jesus to their life. And he becomes a self-help tool to improve the way they're supposed to live. Repentance at its core is much deeper than that. But the fullness of time had come. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. That Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. He is presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah so that they might have all the promises that God restored to them. And it's about God's kingdom. You'll notice that he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the kingdom of God is a huge topic. But there are a couple of things to at least note is that it's mentioned 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. And not only is God's fingerprints on the ebb and flow of history and where they've come and even the, the spiritual desert that they're living in right now, that the time of Christ being there is absolutely perfect according to God's timing and God's purpose. But he's bringing a new kingdom. It's not the kingdom of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's not the Roman Empire that he's promoting or even dismantling. It's not even the kingdom of John's disciples. It's the kingdom of God. 
And the idea of God's kingdom is that this is a new kingdom defined by the person of God. God is the one who rules over this kingdom. It's his purpose and his will and his values and his beliefs and his priorities that need to rule. It's a kingdom that will ultimately triumph over all kingdoms. It's a kingdom that will reflect his character. It's a kingdom that will reflect his righteousness, not man-made righteousness. It's a kingdom that reflects the morality of God, not the morality of human beings, not the morality of religion, not the philosophical morality, not ethnic morality. It's a kingdom that fundamentally operates differently than the kingdoms of this world, where most of the ways that we think of operating are not the way that God's kingdom is going to operate. And so when Jesus comes along, he says, listen, the time is now. The time is right here. God is orchestrating and God has got his fingerprints on this moment. And it's not any of the kingdoms you see around. This is the kingdom of God, the one where God rules over the hearts of his people and changes them to be the kind of people that the world stands back and marvels at because they are so profoundly different. And it involves two things, repent and believe. The word repentance, as many of you know, is just the basic fundamental idea is to change one's mind. And you can get into tons of theological debate. Is it changing my mind about myself and my sin or changing my mind about God? And the answer is yes. Because unless people see themselves as disenfranchised from God's family and that they will never be right with God apart from repenting of their own sins, they will never have an opportunity to get to heaven apart from repenting of their own sins. They will never be part of the kingdom of God unless they repent of the way that they're living life now. That's hard on the Pharisees and the scribes because they've got religion mastered and they think they're doing pretty good. And you're going to run into lots of people who are very religious people and they've got all the rules and regulations and the ceremonies and the formalities done and they think they're pretty good but they don't have a relationship with Christ. You got others that you're going to run into that, that know they're messed up and they've got a ton of brokenness and they'll say, I don't think I ever belong to God because I'm just too messed up that I can't fit in there. No one's going to accept me. And whatever voices we end up listening to, ours most of all, is that we have to repent of our ideas and our perspective of what it means to be righteous and good enough and we have to surrender that all to God and say, God, what do you say are the qualifications to be right with you? And because John had already prepared them by teaching them what it means to repent and to repent of what? Their sins. That set them up perfectly to say, listen, we not only need to repent, but we have to believe in something. See, there's lots of people who will repent of stuff and feel bad about what they've done and say, well, I ought to change, but then they go right back and keep operating the way they've always operated. That might be feeling bad about their choices, but it's not really repenting because repenting has a sense of forsaking what's there and I'm going to pursue a new direction in life. But if people don't embrace something that's more substantive than just them feeling bad about it and they have to fix themselves... 
they'll never really change. They'll never really be transformed. So when he says believe in the gospel, it's I need to believe in Jesus because only he can transform the brokenness and the sinfulness of my heart. Romans 4, 20, verse 21. You knew I'd get back there eventually. It describes the nature of belief. No one uh, talks about Moses. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. Now, I'm not going to draw a hard line on this, but I often talk about belief is in a person. Faith is in the promises. See, the, the idea of repenting is you have to believe in the credibility of who Jesus is. If you think he's just another man or a prophet, you'll take his teachings and whatever, but that's about as far as the credibility goes. But if you actually see him as God's son, Savior, and he, he died for your sins, then I have a reason to repent and say, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe that your son died for my sins, and I need your forgiveness So we have to believe in the credibility of the person if we're going to accept the claims of his promises. And when you believe in who Christ is, then you'll be willingly to surrender my own belief system and my perspective and my evaluation of reality, and I'm willing to surrender all that to say, I'm going to believe and have faith in your promises that you will forgive me if I surrender to Christ. And I just want to encourage you that as simple as this message was back then, it's just as simple today. I don't care if you grew up in church all your life. I don't care if you didn't have anything to do with church in your life. I don't think you care if you think you're basically a good person and try to help others or whether you see yourself as completely worthless. The message of the gospel of Jesus is that every single person not just the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus didn't designate it for just them, He cried out for everyone to repent and to believe in him. That the time is now, that the kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus and those who will repent of their sins and acknowledge it before God and ask God to forgive them by placing faith in Christ because he died for the punishment I deserve for the sin that I've committed. Then he will forgive you and adopt you into his family and, and he will give you the righteousness of Christ so that you have a right standing with him And he will declare you not guilty, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And it doesn't matter whether you're sitting here or watching online, if you've never repented of your sin and believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you'll never be part of the kingdom of God. And you'll never go to a better place when you die, called heaven, or whatever you think that might be, because the only place that's guaranteed is God's home, which he calls heaven. And he has a right to deny entrance to anyone who won't come to him on his terms. No matter how much history has gone by, the mission of the church of Jesus Christ has to be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There may be a lot of other things that we speak into. Jesus is going to do it. He's going to speak into the religion. He's going to speak into the established religion of that particular time. He's going to speak about morality. He's going to speak about a lot of different things, into politics. He's going to talk about Herod every once in a while. But he never allows those things to be such a distraction that it compromises the mission of the gospel. And I'm fully convinced that any church that is a true church of Christ has to be about the gospel of Jesus. So we may not be experts on a lot of things in our world, but I want to plead with you that we become masters of the gospel of Jesus. Not just in something we believe, but like John, the one who came baptizing, that we are actively and intentionally engaged with people so that they will see Christ not as another religion, but the good news of God's kingdom here on earth. Let me ask you this. Do you have people in your life that you know don't know Jesus? If you don't, how are you going to be intentional in order to step into their lives just like Jesus did? And are you willing to have the courage somewhere in that journey to love them enough to say, listen, this isn't, this isn't my religion. The issue here is that Jesus came and said, unless you repent of your sin, just like I had to, and believe in the gospel of who Jesus is, you'll never be part of the kingdom of God. Have you ever communicated that to somebody? Oh, yeah, I know they know you go to church and that you belong to a church and go to stuff, but are we communicating the gospel? to people who desperately need to hear it. Father, we come before you because of the hope of the gospel. This gospel has changed our life. We have nothing to lose and everything to live for because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, quite literally, what can, what can ever happen in this life that could ever separate us from the reality of your grace and mercy towards us? It's not the opinions of others. And yet, Father, there's part of me that knows that, probably like many people here, at times I need to come before your throne of grace and confess that I've worried way too much about my popularity or how people view me and my significance or how many likes we get on terms of Facebook. We've cared too much about having friends rather than being the kind of friend that offers the hope of the gospel. That's not gonna happen by accident. It's gotta happen intentionally that if we really believe this message that we're going to step into people's lives regardless of how costly it'll be. For John, he ended up in prison. 
We know for Jesus, he ended up on a cross. For us, it might be catching the criticism of those who are blinded to the reality of the gospel. But Father, I pray this morning we would understand that this is the greatest message in the universe. And you've called us not to be disciples of John, not even disciples of Oak Grove Church, but disciples of Jesus, who are called to prepare people for the message of hope and forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. The time is now. The time is at hand that the kingdom of God can change us and those around us. And to this end, we pray that you give us the courage to be messengers of hope. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.